Thank you, Elisa. So unlike the actual speaker, I'm not a rabbi, but I do have the pleasure and honor of introducing Rabbi Liebtag. My name is Aaron Kohler. I teach Bible and ancient history at Teresha and Yeshiva University. As Rabbi Silver mentioned, the Bohm Lecture has been running now for more than 20 years. And we've had some very prominent, very eminent speakers in the series. Judy Klitzner, Jonathan Sarna, Leon Cass, Hindi Nyman of Oxford, many prominent speakers. But the one who reoccurs over and over is Rabbi Liebtag. And I got at least one query when uh, someone saw an announcement about Rabbi Liebtag's lecture. Now, really, Rabbi Liebtag again? Which I'm sure was said with excitement. But I think it's worth saying two things by, by way of answering that question. One is that at Drisha, we are not excited by innovation for innovation's sake. We have always been very innovative and continue to be so. As Rabbi Silver mentioned, the yeshiva in Israel is one of the most recent examples. But profound engagement with the classical texts is timeless. And we firmly believe that someone who is a master teacher, who reveals important lessons in the text of Torah, Tanakh, in this case, deserves to be heard as many times as we can possibly hear from him. The second thing is that Rabbi Liebtag has actually always been and continues to be a pioneer. And this goes back a very long way. Some of you, I'm sure, remember, as I do, back in the early 90s, when the internet was somewhat new. And as far as I could tell, like, it was primarily designed to share jokes with all your friends in email. And then someone said, like, well, if you could share jokes, you could probably share Divrei Torah. So people started sending around Divrei Torah. And Rabbi Liebtag said, you know what, Divrei Torah are cute. But I can actually teach people to learn Torah through the internet. I don't have to just send out like a vort, an insight. I can send out thought questions. I can send out sheets that will step people through the process of learning Torah in a way that is actually aimed not for them to keep coming back to me, but to, to learn to be independent learners. And that was, that was revolutionary. He was a real celebrity. And back in the days before, literally before there was Google in the world, certainly before YouTube, he was a celebrity who no one knew what he looked like because he was hanging out in Alon Shrut, sometimes in Yerushalayim. And only if you actually went there did you know what he looked like. Otherwise, you sat at home in New York or wherever you got these emails. And this Rabbi Liebtag was this like, amazing celebrity teacher of Torah, but you know, mystery, mystery man. A few years after that, I was privileged to learn in Yeshivat Haaretzion. And at some point, my parents, who now live in Israel, but then lived, lived in New York, came to visit. And they were so excited to attend Rabbi Liebtag's classes because they read his Torah every week, but to hear him in person, they were like, really? That's what he looks like? <laughs> he doesn't have like a long beard. He's a short beard. Like what kind of uh, celebrity teacher of Torah is this? But of course, once you hear him, you realize that hearing him in person is a qualitative step up even over the uh, transformative power of hearing his Torah online. He's still pioneering. That's what I think is, is remarkable with a website that keeps getting better and more robust and more importantly in person with his many, many thousands of students. I don't know if you have any way of keeping track at this point in all the various schools in Israel where he has taught over the years and in his many opportunities to teach here in the United States as well. So it's a real honor and pleasure to Rabbi, welcome Rabbi Lutag back to this podium. We'll just fix one thing is that the, uh, my internet share actually began as sending jokes out. Oh, really? <laughs> it was, my, in my class, I joke around a lot. It takes a while for students to get used to it, but in class, I'm sure even Aaron remembers, the hardest thing is they don't know when I'm joking when I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, I'll share one story while the page is going around. I taught a class one time, I think it was in Pardes. A friend of mine, Tzvi Hirschfeld, the teacher there, he got a phone call from a student in Pardes he says, he forgot whether you say halal with a bracha or without a bracha on Thanksgiving, you know, in America. He forgot what the, what the minig was. So he said, who told you you say halal with a bracha, you know, halal on Thanksgiving in America? He said, Rabbi Liebtag did. <laughs> so, so he calls me up, what'd you tell these kids? <laughs> so I, I remember when I was teaching the class, I said jokingly, you know, don't we say halal? Like, Yom Atzmut is the day of Thanksgiving. But that was the whole the idea of the shares, because the, the, the Hodaya and the Mizmor was then of thanking God for his intervention in history. So I said jokingly, you know, in America you say, you know, we say hello for Thanksgiving in America, so we should say hello there. I was just joking. But he took me seriously. Okay. <laughs>
Um, so I always have to be careful. Now, we, we spent a lot of time working on the title with, uh, with Rabbi Kohler. But the main idea, we weren't sure, it's, it's, not, it's too far away from Hanukkah to talk about Hanukkah, that was one idea. But it's still close to Rosh Chodesh. So we decided to talk about the calendar. The calendar and, and its theology. And I'll give you an example. Let's say someone asked you, what are the Shalosh Regalim? What are the three, the, the three pilgrimage holidays? What would you call them? No? Give me their names. Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, correct? And what are they called in Hebrew? Shalosh Regalim. Now, does it ever say Shalosh Regalim in Chumash? Or that's just a nickname? Does Chumash ever say those words Shalosh Regalim? It's like, that's just what we say. And, and what are the dates? When is Pesach? When? On the 15th of Nisan. And when is Shavuos? Or, or the six days of, of Sivan. It's on your calendar. And when is Sukkot? Okay, so now we have some fun, okay? Everything you said was all wrong. <laughs> Number one, uh, open up, open up Shmot Terech of Gimel. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, look at Shmot Terech Gimel, and you'll see the word Shalosh Regalim is written. It's not a rabbinic word. It's in the Torah. It better be there, otherwise I put my foot in my mouth. Look in Terech of Gimel, Pasuk Yudalit. You see it? Okay, this is the introduction to the calendar. This is just an introductory. I just want to give you a taste of where, where I want to go with this year. Open up in Sefer Shmot, Perach of Gimel, okay, Pasuk Yudalit, chapter 23, verse 14, page number, 426 in the Art Scroll. 436. 436? Sefer Shmot, Perach of Gimel, Pasuk Yudalit. Shalosh Regalim. See, it's written in Chumash. You've read it many times in Shul, haven't you? You forgot. <laughs> this, uh, um, there's one other time it says Shalosh Regalim. You know when? Uh, only Rabbi Kohler knows that. Where's the other time it says Shalosh Regalim? Right? By, um, with Bilam. But it's not about holidays. It's about three times. Remember, that's, uh, that's just cute. There's something deep there, but not, not for now. So listen. It says three times a year, what do you do? Celebrate for God. Now, you said what were the holidays? Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. What does Chumash say? Chag HaMatzot, 0 for 1. And when do you celebrate it? Does it give a date? It says in the Aviv, in the spring. At the same time, you left Egypt. It's a spring holiday. We'll see why in a minute. Because it's a spring holiday. It just so happens we left Egypt in the spring. God orchestrated the events that we would leave in the spring. But even if, we, even if there wasn't an exodus, in the spring, there would still be a spring holiday. We'll explain why soon. We're, we're celebrating here the spring, the agriculture. You know what spring is in Israel? We'll talk about it soon. That's what I want to get to. But it's a spring holiday, the word is Aviv, the same time that we left Egypt. Now, what's the next holiday? It says Chaka Katsir, without a date, correct? It says Katsir is grain harvest, because you cut the Ktsaras to cut. Okay. So you have to cut the grain to, take, to get the wheat out. So Chag HaKetzir, when do you celebrate it? Doesn't say, does it? It says, what, what's it say, Chag HaKetzir? It says, when? It says, it says, when you gather, when you gather your grain from the field, whenever that might be. Okay. And what's the last holiday? Chag HaSif Asif is gathering, in general, katsir is your grain harvest. Asif is your fruit harvest, because the apples don't fall far from the tree. And therefore, when it falls, you have to gather, at the end of the season, you have to gather what, what you didn't pick from the tree. When, the, what, when what year comes out? What year is it talking about? Okay. And when you gather, you think, now, there's no dates, are there? There's no, for sure, there's no lunar dates at all. Everything here sounds very agricultural. And what do we do on these holidays? Does it say what to do? It says to celebrate. Look at the next line, Pasuk Yezayin. Shalosh pamim b'shana, yera'ek kol zocharcha et p'nei Adon Hashem. What do you have to do? You have to do what? Yeah, you, don't, you don't go to see God, you go to be seen by God. It's like going to shul. You go to be seen. Because you can't see God, but He can see you. So you present yourself in front of God these three times of the year. Got that? Now why? And when? It's totally unclear, isn't it? 
But if I only had these verses, and this is the very first time we find the Shalosh Regalim presented. We heard about Passover when we left Egypt. That was an historical holiday. Now it turned into an agricultural holiday, but all three agricultural. Now, that was my introduction. Let me explain why. If you don't understand the agriculture in the land of Israel, the rabbi just came back from Israel, right? And they have a yeshiva. We visit there a lot, but there's something I'm sure you noticed. If you ever go there in the summer, it's very easy to pack. Because right? it's pretty much the same. It's the only question of how hot it's going to be. It's not like planning camp in America. If you ever plan camp in America, you got to plan for rainy days. No, and that's half the, half the summer. And out, yeah, it's really complicated. In Israel, it's real simple. It's either hot or very hot or too hot. But <laughs> the chances of rain, you know, unless, you're, unless you're anointing a new king, the chances of... No one got that? <laughs> Remember when they anointed a king? When Shaul got anointed? Shmuel brought rain? In the middle of the... It, it's not normal when it rains in the summer. Every once in a while. But it's, if it doesn't rain, how are things going to grow? Well, in Israel, it rains in the winter. At least I hope it does. And if the rain is enough in the winter, that's enough for the crops to grow the rest of the year. And therefore, all the fruit and all the grain in the land of Israel comes in a yearly cycle. And there's only one season a year when grain grows. Now, why is grain so important? Well, ever since civilization began, basically civilization began with the domestication of wheat. If you ever studied anthropology, that's pretty much the... Uh, that's pretty much how they define it. That's when man comes from hunter-gatherer to, you know, once I domesticated grain, then I need a house, and I, I settle down, and basically civilization develops with that. Some people say that the uh, tree of knowledge was uh, wheat, wasn't it? They're onto something. Now, whatever it is, though, wheat, we're hooked on wheat, aren't we? Before all this gluten-free stuff started. But civilization, that, that's anthropology, ask anybody. And man now needs wheat, that, that's a staple. You need grain to survive, or at least to be human. In Israel, it only grow, you can only grow grain once a year, at the end of the winter. Right? The land is ripe for it. And then the grain grows like February, March. Comes early April, mid-April, you can begin to harvest the grain. And that harvest lasts about two months. By mid-June, whatever you harvested, you harvested. In other words, there's a two-month grain harvest in Israel. It's been that way, no time immemorial. That's the nature of the climate in Israel. If, if the grain harvest is bad, what do you do? What do your forefathers do? Huh? We're going to read about it. We read about it in Mincha yesterday. Didn't we? Right? What do they do? You go down to Egypt. What's Egypt have that we don't have? Nile. Remember? Remember Pharaoh's in denial? Explains the whole Exodus story, doesn't it? Now, because of the Nile River, there's a lot of grain. Yosef figured that out, didn't he? And he made a business out of it, and he stored it. But there's a lot more grain because there's sun in Egypt, and there's a river in Egypt. And therefore, you can have more than one grain crop a year. And therefore, when there's a shortage of rain or grain in Israel, you go down to Egypt. And that's why Egypt is the center of civilization, because of that grain. In Israel, we're dependent on rain. Understand? Is that good or bad? We'll see a source about it very soon. It's Macholkin, of course. Now... Therefore, the grain harvest is critical for your survival, isn't it? And therefore, when it comes to grain harvest, you'll do anything to make sure you get that grain. Right? The last time you had grain was June. You went through the whole summer, the whole winter, and you've been waiting patiently for that new grain to grow. It's e you're, you're eager. You just can't wait to be able to harvest it. What's Chumash say to do? When you begin that harvest, before you touch that new grain, who do you have to thank? You have to, and what's that called? Remember the Omer? Remember the whole Elmer sacrifice? The Omer is the very first grain, and you don't touch the new grain, you don't start eating it until we symbolically give something, thank God, for the whole, for the whole season. And then we count, I forget, we count the days or the weeks? Oh, we call both, don't we? we count, for some reason, we count days and weeks. And we learn base seven, and we're, we're good at math because of that. It's from once you understand base seven, if you got base two and you're good in computers and you start, in, you start, you follow? It's, we, we train, we're good in math from a young age. But seriously, that's those seven weeks of counting the Omer, in essence, is simply the grain harvest. Were people aware of that or not? Most people are not aware of that. They think seven weeks is, seven weeks is it's about either mourning or about not going to movies and feeling guilty listening to music. Or, you know, no wedding. You know, that's not what Omer means. 
Omer was a special sacrifice that was brought. And the seven weeks of the Omer is simply the seven weeks of our grain harvest, which is critical for our survival. And when it's over, and hopefully it's good, who do we say thank you to? Tashem. And what do we call that holiday? Well, here it's called Chag HaKatsir, because we're celebrating the end of our Katsir. If Chumas called it Shavuot, it would make no sense at all, correct? Because what does Shavuot mean? And why are we celebrating a week? Only later Chumash will explain, count seven weeks from the time you begin your grain harvest, then you can call it Shavuot. You understand? Without an explanation, I can't call it Shavuot. But if you know climate in the land of Israel, I can call it Chakatsir because Katsir is only one time of year. It's mid-June. It's been that way forever. Now, when exactly do you celebrate it? It's a seasonal holiday, and it can't have a lunar date because it has nothing to do with the moon. It has to have a solar date, an agricultural date, because it has everything to do with the seasons. Understand? Now, the fruits on the trees begin to blossom in the spring, but the fruits don't ripen until summertime. And therefore, only already in late June, then July, the grapes are in season, and the pomegranates. Remember? The maraglim come. Bahayamim and maybe koreanavim. So Tishabav time, or like, I'm not Tishabav, um, 40 days beforehand. Tammuz, which is really a sun god. You knew that? If I have it, where's my color? Where's my academic? You here? Oh, there you go. Isn't Tammuz a sun god? He's a god. He's a god, yeah. Uh, he's, not, he's not a sun god, but he dies every winter and comes back. Back in the summer. But he's got something to do with the uh, people, and they, they used to cry for Tammuz, and Yecheska was complaining about that. Yeah. How it became a Jewish name? No, that's a, <laughs> a different lecture. Um, now, uh, what's important, though, is the summer months are critical for the, for the fruit harvest. And the fruit harvest ends, what time of year? Circus time, in Tishrei, in September. By then, by then, all the grapes are done and everything. The olives last a little bit longer. Olives last till October. And the end, the end of squeezing the olives is Hanukkah. But that's another holiday. It's, just, it's not by chance that, that we light candles on Hanukkah. You understand? It was an olive holiday way before the Maccabees started. You understand? And we'll see later. I think, I think we did that lecture a couple years ago, didn't we? Why it's really a winter solstice holiday that took on historical meaning. And on purpose, they, you know, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't that they won the victory by chance that day. They purposely dedicated, rededicated the temple to coincide with that event because of its symbolism. Remember, uh, light in the time of darkness and things like that. So, therefore, the holidays here are agricultural. And if you look carefully at the source we just looked at, it really begins in Pasekut Gimel. Because if you're a farmer and you need the grain to survive and you need your crops to live, you'll do anything to make sure your crops grow. What was the custom in Canaan? Everyone believed in God, but many gods. There was a grain god and there's a rain god and there's, a, there's, there's lots of gods. And who do you turn to for grain? To a grain god, whoever it might be. There's lots of gods. There's a whole pantheon of gods. And therefore, the laws begin in Pasek Gidgimel. Look at Pasek Gidgimel. See verse 13? We're in Parshat Mishpatim. In chapter 23. From chapter, one, from chapter 21 to chapter 23, we're all laws, like a whole set of laws. Three chapters of laws called Pasek Mishpatim. Mostly between man and his fellow man. It's jurisprudence and good behavior. Ending with not even taking bribes. No, we take basic torts and laws and, and what's called nisikin, damages. And then we go to... Um, Moral law, and returning lost items and things like that, and not lying and cheating and things like that, and being kind to the poor. And then finally, we conclude with Pasig Gimel, what's it say? V'chol asher matetchem tishomeru. Okay, got that? V'shem, what do we say here? Elohim. Because it's other gods. When it's our God, we say Elohim. When it's other gods, we say Elohim. V'shem Elohim acherim lotaskiru. Don't you dare mention the names of the other gods. Like Voldemort, you know, don't even mention their name. Got it? Instead, make sense now? Because who are people going to go to at grain season? They're going to go to the local gods. What's Chumash tell you? Come to my office. Remember in Yeshiva World, like let's say there's a, a Super Bowl or something, and the Rosh doesn't want you going to these sports games. So we have a Malafa Malka, the same. You know, the Rosh Yeshiva wants you. You know, we're having something special. At the same time, there's a big sports event. And, and that was in the old days when sports wasn't good. Now, Halavadeh went to sports. And, not, was, now going to sports is the cheapest thing to do now. Yeah. Times have changed. Now, so that's the, um, 
Make sense now? And therefore, Chumash is telling you to remember that who's behind your grain harvest in your agriculture? The God, the God of creation. In fact, what's the name for many gods in Hebrew? Elohim. What's the name for our God? Elohim. <laughs> and that's the, that's, there's a whole story about that. That what appears to be many gods is really one God. It's called the first chapter of Breshit, isn't it? Because what's God's name in creation? Elohim. And how does Chumash teach you monotheism? Rabbi Yudha Levi, um, you heard of him, Rabbi Yudha Levi, in the Kuzari? In the fourth section, he gives a beautiful explanation. Why is God's name Elohim? It makes no sense. The one God is plural, but that's the whole point. Chumash teaches monotheism by making a mistake in grammar. We take the word Elohim, which is plural, and we conjugate it in the singular. And therefore, what appears to be many gods is really one God. And therefore, there isn't a sun God, rather, God made the sun. It's the son of God. And God made the moon. And God put the sun in charge. It looks like the sun's in charge. He looks like a God, but really God made him. And God made fertility. God made vegetation. And God made man. Sometimes man thinks he's a God. And man is so creative, he comes up with this idea that there might not even be a God. That's how creative man is. But, and God put man in charge, but man needs to remember, just like the sun appears to be in charge of the sky, he is, but God put him in charge, and he listens to God. He follows God's rules. God put man in charge of everything below the sun, but he better follow God also. You get, you get the impression he's like a God, but really, there's a God above him. You understand what's happening in Bereshit? Now, to remember that, God gives us a creation story, not to tell you how he did it, but to explain how to relate to nature in creation. And therefore, anything you'll find that has to do with nature is going to have the number seven. We'll catch on to it very soon. And any time where there's a danger, you may think there's other gods or nature gods or different powers other than the one God, to remember that there's one God who made the system that we call nature, and there's a hierarchy, we're going to find the number seven, and that's the story of creation. Now, I'll share with you something. If you follow Chumash, Sefer Shmot comes before Sefer Breshit. You didn't understand that. I'll explain what I mean. According to Rashi, when did we receive Sefer Breshit? When did we receive the book of Breshit? When does Amisel receive the story of creation and the several forefathers? At Mount Sinai. According, according to Rashi, and you know, he's a pretty good commentator, right? he says that when you were there, you just forgot. When we said Nasev and Ishma, remember Shmo 24 7? There it says, Moshe took the Sefer of Rit, read it in front of the people, and what did everyone answer? Nasev and Ishma. What was Sefer of Rit? What did Moshe read out loud to the people? And these were during the three days of preparation before we got the Ten Commandments. Remember? That's what the way, even though it's out of, according to Rashi Chumash, is out of order. But according to Rashi, what are we learning for the three days in preparation for receiving the Torah, receiving, entering the covenant? We get a class of, about who God is, why we're chosen, who our forefathers were, where we're coming from, where we're going to. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And whenever I read a book, especially a prophecy, even though its meaning is eternal, there's always the original audience. And you always have to ask yourself, who is the original audience who this book was written for? Now, the message is eternal, but every book has its original audience. And the original audience of Sefer Breshit is who? It's the nation that just got out of Egypt. They've been keeping Shabbos for the last three weeks, haven't they? Since the month started falling. But they don't know why every seven days, other than God said, every seven days. After eating man, every, after keeping the manna laws for three weeks and keeping Shabbat for some reason, what's Moshe Rabbeinu explained to them? Here's why we keep Shabbat. In other words, we don't keep Shabbat because God created in seven days. God created in seven days, so we give meaning to Shabbat. You understand what I mean? In other words, God's, not, God's powerful enough to make up a story. God's not telling you how he did it. He's explaining to give meaning to Shabbat. How God did it? Ask a scientist. It changes every couple thousand years. But what's eternal is, what's, what is, when I perceive creation, and there's a God, what's the meaning of creation? What's the meaning of Tzadad Elohim? Do we ever do this year about Breshit, about the, how, it's, how it's structured? Remember learning day one, day, day one's parallel to day four? You've done that, right? Day two is five. There's a structure to the, it's, it's a beautiful structure. But the, the most beautiful thing about it is that, you know, remember day one, light and night, and day four, the sun and the moon? Day two, the rakia divides the heaven and the, and, the, and the seas. 
Day five is the fish and the fowl. Day three is land. And day six is land animals. But the most important thing is on day three, there's two acts of creation. We go from land to vegetation. Remember? There's two acts of creation, two vayom erlokims. There's two commands by God and two executions and two evaluations. That's why it says, kitov twice. And the first act of creation is land. The second one is vegetation. And in a very similar manner on day six, there's two acts of creation. The first one is land animals. And the second one is, is man. But two separate acts of creation on each. Now, is there a connection between land and vegetation? For sure. Is there a difference? Wow, of course there is. Because land is, is inorganic and vegetation is organic. That's life, isn't it? Before, before vegetation, there is no life. There's matter. There's elements. You can't, but however that came about. But between the first act of creation on day three and the second act, there's a quantum leap. There's a world of difference between land and vegetation. It's wool. That's big, isn't it? You know, it's one stems from the other, but it's, it's, a, it's a, something, something brand new. In a similar manner on day six, there's a connection between animal and man. Just look around. There's a museum here, a natural history. We're mammals. We're, we're super similar to... What's Chumash telling you? That even though we're similar, there's a quantum leap between man and animal. And what's that called? Telemedokim. Got it? And if I want to appreciate that there's something godly about my existence, which is pretty much man's creativity, I need to recognize that even though I'm similar to an animal, I'm different than an animal. And, and that's where religion begins, because the understanding that God made you different than everything else in creation, and there's something godly about you. Because what was God doing for six days? It was called Melechat Machshevet. He thought about doing something, and then he did it. Remember, remember every day? Let there be, and there... Remember, there's a commander in execution and an evaluation. That's what we do. We think about doing something, and then we do it. And then we regret what we did, and then we regret, the, remember the flood story? And then we regret that we regretted, and promise not to do it again? That's, no, that's the best anthropomorphism there is. If you follow the stories in Brishit. Uh, we're describing God in human terms so that we can relate to God. What, what I'm getting at is that Chumash wants man to recognize that he's different than the animals. There's something, there's something godly about his existence. And God entrusted man with his creation. And God finished his creation in seven days or six days, rested. And when it's over, we go from creation to civilization. And, and then there, there's all these things we do to remember that God entrusted us with creativity, with his, with his creation. We have to appreciate it and use that creativity properly. And therefore, there's, like, we stop once a week. Every seven days, we stop all creativity. And what do we do? What don't we do? The things we, we don't do are all the things that make us different than animals. You ever notice that? Remember domesticating wheat. That's unique to humans. In our diet, no animal is stupid enough to plow a field and plant seeds and wait a couple months and harvest it and then grind it and make, and make hollow. Got it? Just be a hunter-gatherer. It's a lot easier. It's a mishigas. You know what that is? But we're, we're hooked on it, aren't we? But that's where civilization begins, with domesticating wheat. Animals eat other animals, don't they? But we cook them. Animals don't do that. We cook our meat. Um, animals communicate, but they don't write down their thoughts, do they? And pass it down? We have writing. They don't build, they, they might have nests or ant farms, but they don't, they don't change every couple of years, you follow? It's in their DNA. We think about, we have architects, and we make machines, we have industry. You understand what I'm getting at? Clothing. Remember, isn't that unique to humans? So, did we just explain all the laws of Shabbat? All the things you can't do on Shabbat are all the things which differentiate different humans from animals. Because we need to remember where B'Tselem the metal came. I mean, it's, it's all sure, but it, even keeping kosher is the same idea. Should you eat an animal or not? So, if eating an animal reminds you you're different than an animal, then it's good. If eating an animal makes you act like an animal, then it's bad. So, what do we do? <laughs> we can't make up our mind. Before the flood, after the flood. Yeah. But, so if we're going to eat an animal, what do we have to do? Something symbolic to remember, it should remind us we're not an animal. It's called a korban, or korban shlamin. Or it's called keeping kosher, isn't it? Isn't that keeping kosher? If we're going to eat an animal, put it in the framework of something connected to your godliness. And therefore, according to Vayikra, if you're going to eat meat, it's got to be a, it's got to be a sacrifice. And Devarim gives in a little bit and says, you know what, if you're far away, 
It's called, you treat it like, like a mini sacrifice. So you, you don't, whatever would have been on the altar, you don't eat. Remember? The blood and the, and the high cholesterol. Remember the, the chilev. Now, I was very wise of God not to let us eat the high cholesterol. You know all the chilev? The chilev is like the worst part. But it smells really good when you burn it. Now, so I'm trying to show you when Chumash gives us the story of creation, not to tell us how God did it, but to give meaning to the concept of Tzedem Elohim. Therefore, every time I'm going to find the number seven, it's going to relate to that concept of, of a God who created nature. And therefore, all the, there's going to be seven days of Chagamatzot, right? There'll be seven weeks. And then in the seventh month, we have seven days of Chagasukot. Got it? It's all, it's, we just explained Sefer Dvarim, the laws, the holidays in Dvarim in Parshat Ray, didn't we? Shiva Shvot remember? And then Shiva Temim Tochal Abatzot. And then Shiva, um, and Sukkot also, Shiva Temim, no, have a Chag. But the number seven is everywhere there. And it's even better when it comes to, there's really strange Pasuk um, by Matzah, remember? Eat Matzah for six days, and the seventh day, you rest. <laughs> What's it sound like? Just like Shabbat, isn't it? Six days you work, and seven days. So what I'm getting at is that Chumash is using this concept of a day in a week right, to teach you its theology. That was my title. Hope that's clear. And therefore our calendar is, our calendar is solar in the sense we make a big deal about a day. Everyone had a day. But even though a day is a natural cycle, a seven-day week is totally unnatural. Because there's no logic to it. Somehow everyone caught on to it. The Kuzari makes a big deal about it. It's one of our proofs of God creating. Because where's this custom of seven come from without, without, our, without our story? But there's no logic to a seven-day week other than the fact that we started. Because it doesn't fit into months or years or anything. It doesn't divide up easily. Now, everyone also has a lunar calendar. Every, every society. Because the moon is a very convenient way of keeping track of time. And everyone has a solar calendar. Originally... Every calendar was lunar and solar, like our calendar. Because it makes sense. It makes sense to have a lunar calendar, you have months. It makes sense to have a solar calendar because you have seasons. So our holidays begin as seasonal holidays. And they can't have a lunar date because they have nothing to do with the moon. However, man from time immemorial keeps track of time by, mo- by months. Now, the problem is the moon and the sun are not in sync. You would hope that there'd be an even amount of months in a year, but it doesn't work out that way. It's all mixed up, right? There's like 11 days off or something like that, isn't there? So what do you do? There's all these different methods of what we call a leap year, right? If you know the cal- before the Julian reform, before the, the, the early Roman calendar was very similar to ours. Because what was the first month? No, not in the first calendar, the first month. What's the 10th month? December. And what's the seventh month? September. Work backwards, what's the first month? March. Like ours, it's Chodesh Nisan. It's a spring month. February was the extra. February was, February was always Meshuggah. February, they kept on adding. They have, they have a fancy name for it. But, but the 11th month was January. And February, they, had, they put as many days as they needed to get things starting again. It was their type of leap year. Julius Caesar said it's too complicated. And they gave up on the moon. Remember the Julian calendar? It was like 56 BC, something like that. BC or C? BC. BC, BC, yeah. Sorry. BCE, I'm sorry. What did he do? They say, it's too complicated, so we're going to keep the concept of a month, but bye-bye moon. <laughs> Understand? So we kept the concept of 12 months, but we added a day or two every month to make, it, to make a full year. But there's no longer any connection between the moon and the month. Right? In our calendar, we're loyal to the moon, aren't we? Rosh Chodesh is Rosh Chodesh. Remember, we announced it in Shul this week. Thursday night, and five or something like that. In the morning, it's a molad. The, the new moon is always going to be a new moon. But how do we keep them in sync? So we have what's called a leap year. That's why our calendar is so complicated. But we're, now, in, in Mesopotamia, their calendar is just by the moon. If you follow Islam, remember Ramadan? It's a 12-month year, and that's it, whatever season it is. But the, the, therefore, the calendar in, e- in Mesopotamia is always a lunar one. In Egypt, it was always a solar one. Got it? And that's why I think in, in Yosef's dream, I think that was, that was the Shemesh. It was who's bowing down to Yosef? The 11 stars, the brothers, and who's the sun and the moon? Egypt and Mesopotamia. And that's what happened. And Bethel bowing to him because he's the source of wheat. You know, he's the source of their sustenance. It could be, but, but in general, that's why, that's why the sun and the moon are going to be, will be the two different calendars which represent their civilizations. 
Remember, the sun god is Ra, is the big god of Egypt. Now, in our calendar now, we're loyal to both, but because of that, what do we need to do? Shamar Chodesh Aviv. Which means what? If, if 12 months pass by and it's not spring yet, what do you do? Add another month. Because Passover always has to be in the spring. Why? I just read chapter 16 in Devarim. Remember Parsha Ray? Read it every Yom Tov. How do you keep the month of the spring? It's very easy. If, if it's not springtime, you add a month. And every two, three years, we need to add a month. Now, we set the calendar, this 19-year cycle, you know, way back, in the, after the Council of Nicaea, in the 3rd century, it was something like that. And they got the calendar a little bit better. They went, I think, from 365 to 365 and a quarter. Or they, they did a tikkun to make it work out better. Um, so our calendar now has also lunar dates. But it, because historical events happen on lunar dates, right? so now whenever it comes to history, we use a lunar date. Got it? And now all the holidays, even if it wasn't for the historical events, they'd be a holiday for the agricultural reason. And the historical holiday would be historical, even had there not been something agricultural. But God orchestrated the events that they coincide. So he gave us the Torah at the same time of year as Shavuot. Then he gave us, took us out of Egypt in the spring. Now, so let me show you one thing. Look, look in, in source B. Open up your Chumash to Sefer Tzvarim Perikud Aleph. A little Zionism for the day. I want to show you the theology. It's also a big theme in Sefer Breshit. Like it's, 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 it's chapter 11, verse 10. Page announcer when someone gets it. Probably 994. 994? 994? Chapter 11. Just take a sneak preview to chapter 11, verse 13, which you know by heart. What's chapter 11, verse 13? Perikidala, Pasikidgimel. That's the second parasha of Kriyachma. And what's, he te- what's God tell you? If you keep my laws, what will God give you? To give you rain at the right time of year. Don't keep my laws, I'll hold back the rain. Now, is that good or bad? Who would want to live in a system like that? Wouldn't you rather be in a system where you have all the water you need and you're not dependent on God? Well, now look at the introduction to these laws. Look in verse 10. In verse 10. What's Moshe Rabbeinu telling the people in his speech? See, see Pasuk Yud? The land that you're going to is not like Egypt, got it? Which you went out of. The land I'm giving you to inherit is not like Egypt, because there you would water your field with your foot, meaning you'd open and close those irrigation ditches. You learned that in world history, didn't you? The Nile Delta and the irrigation ditches. How'd you water your field? You kicked open the ditch and you kicked it closed. So you didn't even need a plumber. You needed muddy shoes. That was, that was the system. It was easy. But what's good about it, you have a constant supply of water. The land that you're going to doesn't have a big river. Instead, what's it have? You need rain. Now, some, some parts of think Rosh says, that's great. Why? Because you can sleep and God waters the field for you. But Rosh Bam, his grandson, totally disagrees. He says, no, it's much worse. Because in Egypt, you have a constant supply of water. It's a good investment. In Israel, it's a risky, it's a risky investment because everything's dependent on the rain. Now, what's the next line? God looks over this land, and based on what does he give you the rain? Based on your behavior. Now, what does it mean, What do you mean God's eyes are watching over the land? So we usually understand that as God's providence. Like, you know, someone's watching. But it's beautiful wordplay in Hebrew, because what's the word in Hebrew for a spring? Ma'ayan. It comes from the word ayin. Ayin is a source of tears, isn't it? So an ayin is a ma'yan, it's a, source of, it's a source of liquid. And therefore ayin is the word for a spring, a ma'yan. Ein gedi, ein hanetziv, ein a lot of places. Wherever there's a source of water that springs up, that's called a ma'yan or an ayin. Therefore, enei Hashem is beautiful wordplay. Because God's watching over us in providence, but also he's our source of our water. So what are we saying? Who would want to live in a system where you need to keep mitzvot to get rain? Wouldn't you rather be in a system where I don't need God? Yeah. Unless you want to need God. You understand the theology behind it? Ask Lot. Lot doesn't like that kind of life, does he? He'd rather live. Remember, when he went to Egypt, he saw the good life. And when he comes back, remember he sees the Nile River? That's the way to live. We don't have to pray for anything. You're not in need of God. And therefore, when he comes back to Israel, he's looking for Egypt, and he finds it in the Jordan Valley. 
But that leads to pretty bad behavior if you don't appreciate where your source of water is from. Look what happens in stone. The question is, do you want to be in a land or do you want to live a life where you're in need of God for your, for your existence? So someone who wants a relationship with God would love that. Someone who doesn't want a relationship with God, right, stay away from it. And, and, and that's the question, is, is, is that good being, is the climate and land of Israel conducive to religious behavior? It's, it's, it's a dangerous investment, isn't it? But someone who wants to be, te- someone who wants to have a connection, someone who needs, that needs people, that's a different song. So you want to be someone who's in the need of God because that'll build your connection to God. And that's why, what's the next part in Chumash? If you follow my laws, I'll give you rain. And don't follow, I won't give you rain. Now, it's not that we pray, it's not that we pray to God to give rain. You follow? Because then he becomes a rain God. That's a misunderstanding. God says, I'm going to show you, I'll give, you want a sign from me? Remember like little children. They want to know, is mommy happy? Right? Do you need a smile? You need some way of communicating. How does God communicate with us? That's why matar is such a big theme. It's in davening a big deal, isn't it? And we, we pray for it. And it's, a, it's, a, it's not just we need it for life. It, it's the, the spiritual side. We need a connection to God. And, that's, and the climate in the land of Israel is, is conducive for a, a strong relationship. It's, it's a dangerous thing because if, if you don't keep the laws, you get punished a lot quicker. Now, now we're going to come to the holidays in light of that. Do you understand that idea? I'm thinking how, how the, once you understand the climate and land of Israel, it explains our theology. It, it explains our relationship with God. And it can be one of the reasons why God picked this land for his people. There's, other, there's historical reasons. It's also located between big civilizations. So like, all the travel between Egypt and Mesopotamia, the big civilizations goes through our land. So if we're doing a good job, we can make a name for God. And we do a bad job, God has um, enemies. Like, it's, there's always wars in the Middle East. But there's great potential for peace. If we keep, you know, it's, it's, it's a great place for, to have a relationship with God, for good or for bad. Now, um, I want to use this, in the last part of the year, I want to use this to explain the holidays in general and, and how to view them. So we talked about the, um, we talked about the climate, we talked about the Galim and the holiday calendar. Now, the first holiday calendar is all solar. Only in Sefer Vayikra, the famous Moadim in Parshat Amor, we have the calendar, they go together. Remember, Moadei Hashem, Amoid is the time to meet. Remember, Vad is to meet. And therefore, I now I need a lunar calendar because I need a lunar calendar. I have to set it. And God leaves that to us. Remember? We, you know, we decide when Rosh Chodesh is. And therefore, we decide when the holidays are. Remember, Kaddish Zerob Asmanim? He, he sanctified us and gave us the right to pick what, what day the holidays can be. Shabbos, that's up to God. Every seven days is Shabbat. It has nothing to do with, with the moon or anything. But the months, and therefore, and therefore the, lunar, the lunar days of the holidays, have everything to do with, with, with the moon. But we decide when Rosh Chodesh is. Give or take your day. Now, the same idea with, with the mana. One last thing, and then we'll get to the other holidays. Why, why is the mana falling every seven days? Remember when the mana falls? Because, God, because mana is going to be our bread. And the bread we eat in the desert is preparation for the land of Israel. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu explains in Sefer Dvarim. That the reason I gave you the mana was to train you for the dangers of prosperity in the land of Israel. Now, what did we do? How much mana did we take? We took an Omer, remember? Omer was the measure that we used in the desert to collect the man. Now, Chazal have a beautiful midrash about what bracha we made on the man. Remember what the, what the rabbis say? What bracha do we make on the man? Hamotzi lechem min hashamayim. Do you understand why? Now, it's obvious that the man is coming from God. It comes miraculous. Now, if it came every day, it called nature, but it stops every seven days. By not, by not raining man on Shabbos, that shows us it's a miracle the other six days of the week. It sort of sets the stage. That's our first Shabbos experience. So, but the mana goes hand in hand with the word Omer. Because the word Omer the first time is by the mana. And the Omer is the measure, either the measuring cup or the measure, that's unique to scooping up the man. In the land of Israel, we don't need mana anymore, do we? What do we have instead? We have lechem mina aretz. Like that's a bracha we make, isn't it? Because we do it. But where do we get the bread from? From our grain. Where's the grain come from? Well, from God. What do we do at the very beginning of our grain season? We bring a special offering to God. And what do we call it? Now you understand why? 
Because what do we, and what do we do for the next seven weeks of our grain harvest? What, what do we talk about every day, Omer? What are we basically saying to God or to ourselves? Even though we're doing all the work ourselves, we're collecting the grain, we're treating it as though it's mana. You understand what, what Omer is about? And therefore, that's why we count weeks, not just days. Doesn't make sense why we call it, we count weeks? Because the whole theme of a week, the whole theme, that whole theology of a God behind nature, and it's one God who's judging you based on your behavior and how you deal with your, how you use your tzelem elokim in the service of God, I need to remember that. Because when you become wealthy and prosperous and become like a good like farmer like Boaz, it might get to your head. But I can, I can thank God by not just saying thank you, by acting thank you. Keeping the mitzvot of, of, of the Torah. And therefore, we use the word Omer first by the mana story, and then afterwards only by, the, by Shavuot. And that's, that's why we count weeks. And what do we call the holiday? We're celebrating the concept of a week. We're not celebrating the fact that we didn't miss a day of... We're not celebrating the fact that we didn't miss any days counting. But some people say, oh, I, I, did, I didn't miss any days. You know, that's usually how we... It's, it's like a contest. Am I going to remember every day to count? Now it's easy because they have a, a nap. But we're celebrating the concept of a week because it's the end of our grain harvest. If our grain harvest is good, we have food now for the rest of the year. And we're happy. Who do we thank? Not ourselves but God who made the system. Got the idea? And therefore, we have seven, seven weeks. In, in seven days of seven weeks, got the idea? And then there's a seven-year cycle. Remember? The whole Shemitah cycle. Which is going to also prepare us for, for, for Hakkah over here, for receiving the Torah again. Now, what I want to conclude with is how this explains the holidays. Um, I'm going to start from a different angle, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, is there an obligation to pray? Are we obligated to pray? The Oraita or the Rabban? Is it a biblical obligation or a rabbinic one? What's the answer to always a question like that? It's a machloket. Okay. Between who and who? Everyone learned that in school probably. I'm just, for those who didn't, there's a famous argument between Maimonides and Nachmanides, Ramban and Rambam, over the biblical obligation to pray. Everyone holds there's a biblical obligation. Ramban holds only when you're in trouble. Rambam holds... You're always in trouble. <laughs> that every day. Rambam holds every day. But probably because he, he holds... You might not realize it, but he's smart, the Rambam. And he knows nature. He's a doctor. He knows... You're lucky with all those germs going around that you're, that you're not sick. So you're always in trouble. Now, but there's an obligation to pray. Rambam has a different source, though. The first that, that Rambam uses is a beautiful one. Turn your page over. I put it in big letters. It's in Sefer Devar, it's in Sefer Bamidbar chapter 10. After a very insignificant law about, about trumpets, remember when they travel in the desert, there's a commandment to make trumpets and you blow the trumpets when you, gather, when you travel and when you, for assembly. There's all laws about Kiyan Shura and Parsha Balotcha. But that was a law for the desert. When those laws are over, there's a special commandment. And so it's like this. About five more minutes, we're okay? Okay. Plus like that. Everyone have it in, in source F. What's that mean? Should war be imminent in your land? Whatever the enemy might be. Very typical. Got it? What are we commanded to do when war is imminent? We have to blow the trumpets. And then we'll be remembered by God. We, we have to remember. And God remembers us. He, he remembers him in front of God. And he'll save us from our enemies. Now, if I read this superficially, it looks like God's sleeping. Right, right. Or, I mean, and we want him to come help. What do we do? Wake him up. Now, that can't be. How do Chazal understand? Exactly the opposite. There's a basic assumption, again, on, on the national level. If God's not happy with our national behavior, he has different tools he uses to wake us up. One of those tools is bringing, starting wars. Another tool is a famine. Another tool is a drought. Another tool is an epidemic. Flip the page over. I'll show you what I'm talking about. On, see where it says source D? On the bottom from Yechezkel? Chapter 14. You teach Yechezkel, don't you? You teach sometimes. You're, you're my own man. No, no. Now, look in Yechezkel. And see in the bottom, chapter 14. I'll translate. Ba'idvar the more Ben Adam. Should the land, not the land, but the people in the land, sin and upset me. I'm going to set my hand out against them. 
I'm going to take away their sustenance, their, their bread, their food. I'll make a famine. And I'll get rid of, and that'll cause people to, to perish. Okay? And then God has four judges. He has, he has four tools. God, says God has four tools he uses as a wake-up call. What we call Nidash Apachantochas. What that means? People, some people know what that is. It's, it's a wake-up call. We're not happy with your behavior. What, what are God's four shvatim? Cherev, which is war. Ra'av, famine. Chaya ra'ah, wild animals. Endeavor, that's a medical epidemic. Got it? From nature, it's all, all different ways. Okay? I sent all of them against Yerushalayim to punish it because God was not happy with the way Yerushalayim was acting. It was, what's the assumption of Chumash? Is that when God's not happy with our behavior... He has different tools he can use as a wake-up call. It can be war. It can be famine, drought, sickness. Therefore, what are we commanded to do? What's our assumption if war is imminent? Right? right? But we're supposed to remember that what? Not to blow shofar, God come and help us. Remember that God sent the punishment. It's not that we got hit by probability. It's not that by chance these things happen. But because God made the system, he has protexia. And hey... You're our God, come and help us. You follow? And what God wants is just wants us to pray and then he'll come and help us as long as you pray. It's very different according to the Naveen. Okay? When something bad happens, again, on the national level, not on the individual level, on the national level, that's a wake-up call from God. There's something wrong with your behavior. Now, what do we need to do? We need to remember that that, that God exists. We need to remember that he's not happy. And therefore, we have to do what's called tshuva. Isn't that exactly Rosh Hashanah, the way the rabbis understand blowing shofar? We don't need to remember to blow shofar. We blow shofar to remember that God's judging us. Now, I'll, I'll show you that. Shlomo Melech for sure understood it this way. Look, look in, in the beginning of Source D. When he dedicates the temple, he has his famous prayer, What's he say? When do you pray to God in the temple? When there's the drought and there's no rain. Why? Not because by probability it just happened. What's the assumption of Shlomo's prayer? If there's a drought, don't blame, God, blame yourselves. It's a sign from God. Now, is that a good place to live or not? Well, if you want to be good, you want to be graded, that's good because you get a wake-up call when you're going in the wrong direction. So what do you do? What's the purpose of prayer in the temple? Did you realize what Shlomo was saying? You're coming to the temple to hear the rabbi's speech. You don't understand that. Explain what I mean. Yeah. You're not coming to the temple to pray, save me from my enemies. You're coming to the temple to remember God's not happy with your behavior, and you're coming to repent. Now, the problem is, you know God's not happy, but what am I doing wrong? Or not me, what's someone else doing wrong? You always want to hear what someone else is doing wrong. You know, it's the Haredim's problem. It's, 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 it's always somebody else. It's called self-righteousness. Um, now, the... Um, but we, can, what do we, we know God's unhappy. What are we doing wrong? That's why we gather. We gather in the temple to hear. Back then, the first rabbi's speech was the, was the, the Psalms. The Shir Shoyom. Tehilim, the first two books for sure, a lot of them, are, are Muslim, but are rebuke. And they're reminding the people. And therefore, when they brought their sacrifices, what did they do? As they brought their sacrifices, they blew shofar. Right? And then the, then the Levim began to sing. Not some songs like an orchestra but songs with meaning, songs with, with, with direction. What does God want from you? And the Vim would give a speech. But I need to gather as a nation to understand, to introspect into what we're doing wrong. Now, God says, if you show me you're sincere and you care and you want to do better, he'll stop the problem even before you finish your tshuva. Got it? Just show me you're going in the right direction. But therefore, it's, it's a very different concept of prayer. It's not God needs to hear magic words and he'll, you know, just show God you care, that just show God you believe in him, and he'll answer your prayer. It's very different. Understand that God has expectations from you, and he's not happy, and therefore, do your best to fix your behavior. Now, what am I doing wrong? That's why we gather as a group, and we have to hear our guidance, and that's why God gives us Nabim. Now, that's why you, the main reason you come to shul is really dash. If the shul is like a mikdash, the highlight of the shul service is the rabbi's speech. You follow? Rabbi Robinson's not here, if I can say that, but he, he's a good one. He's a... No, it's, was, how can we improve our community? How can we, it's not what you're doing wrong. How can you do what you're doing good better? Now, 
saying, because you should hear and forgive us, right? And you put us in the right direction. And then, then you give rain. And if you look at his prayer, he does it step by step for all the four things that Yechezka is talking about. You follow? And that's, we learned Tefillah from that, from exactly from Shlomo. Now, when people misunderstand the temple and think all God wants is sacrifices, then that's when God says, remember, that's Yeshayahu Perkalev. Remember, don't give me that bull, he says. I don't want your sacrifices because your society is corrupt. You remember that from, from before Tisha B'Av. Um, now, let's go back to the holidays. You understand what we did? That's, that's the, when you understand that nature is a tool from God, as a wake-up call, then, again, on the natural level, not as an individual, as a nation, those are signs, and, and you could be happy to be in that system because it keeps you in, in check. Now, let's conclude with the holidays. So, should there be trouble now, what's the assumption? The reason why there's a war imminent, because our behavior is not good. We blow shofar not to wake God up, to wake ourselves up. Make sense now? Wake ourselves up. And remember that God is judging us based on our behavior. If we remember, if we remember that we're being judged and we do tshuva, what will God do? He'll save us from our enemies. Make sense? Now look at the next line. What's that mean? On your happy days and your holidays and on Rosh Chodesh, what are we commanded to do? We're commanded to blow shofar, blow the trumpets again when we bring our sacrifices. We just talked about that. Offerings. And there will be a zikaron in front of God. I'm Hashem, your God. Now, I'm sure that verse looks familiar, doesn't it? It better. How come it looks so familiar? On Rosh Hashanah davening. Now, is this verse in Malchiot, Zichronot, or Shofrot? Which one? But well, why would it be in Zichronot? Oh, it says Zikaron. Why would it be Shofrot? Okay. And why would it be in Malchiot? Ani Hashem Elokechem. Remember? That's Shema, isn't it? So guess which one it is. According to Rashi, it's all three. And when do we, we, technically we say it in Shofrot, but it's the conclusion of Shema It's the grand finale. You ever pay attention to it? There's got to be a chaz in here. Remember that last, it, it's the last line of Mosaf. It's the, it's the grand finale and it's all three together. Now, those two psukim are important. Why? They, they work, they, they explain each other. Pasuk Ted is Ramban's source for prayer, the obligation to pray in times of trouble. That's the source. It makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm going to share with you an analogy and that'll explain everything we did. Everyone here has gone to the dentist, right? Tell me when you go to the dentist. Yeah. Well, when you have a toothache, why do you go to the dentist when you have a toothache? Because he can help you. You also go to the dentist for a routine checkup as preventive medicine. Now, who's more likely to go for a toothache? Someone who goes to his routine checkup or someone who doesn't? Of course, if you don't, that's the purpose of a routine checkup. Now, which pusik is your toothache? Which pusik is your routine checkup? You understand? Pusik tet is your toothache. Pusik good is your routine checkup. What's our routine checkup? The holidays is a routine checkup with God. It's preventive medicine. That's why the rabbis say in, times to come, in, the, in the times of Mashiach, we won't have fast days anymore. The fast days will be holidays. Because we won't need fast days because the holidays will do the job. If we, do, if, we have a good, if we do good hygiene, if we do good. And therefore, what do we do on the holidays? We have a checkup to prevent wars from breaking out. But when are the holidays? When we're being judged by nature. You follow? Remember the four Rosh Hashanahs? Now the Masechah makes sense? Right? When, right before the grain harvest is about to begin, we're being judged for our grain. When? Pesach time. Our life is on the line. It's not immediate as war. Got it? That's like, knocking, that's, right, right, that's right in front of you. But it's, it's about to happen. But when you look into it, the grain harvest is going to determine the outcome of the year, of how much food you have. It could go bad. And therefore, I'm being judged. God judges our grain harvest already. And if he sees Pesach time, we're dedicated to God, he'll give us a good grain harvest. Shavuot's time, what are we being judged for? For perot, for the fruit harvest coming up. Because if they can get worms, they can get ruined also. Okay. What's happening in Tishrei? What's about to happen in Tishrei? The most important time of the agricultural year, which is the rainy season. Because it doesn't rain all year long. If it rains in Cheshvan, there's a special name for that rain, called Yoreh. In Makosh, we talk about it in Shemun it's, it's so special, it's got a name. 
because I can survive the summer from the aquifer. Because when it rains, there's, you know what an aquifer is? There's a big lake under the land. And there's lots of water. When it, if it rains, it fills up. But when it fills up, I have to tap it. That's what our forefathers did for a living. Didn't they, Doug? That's how you dig a well. And you have to dig in the right spot, and you have water in the summer. But if it doesn't rain in the winter, the aquifer will be dry. It can get polluted and things like that. Therefore, you need a good rain in the winter, and, and you'll survive through the summer. And therefore, the early rains in Cheshvan are going to determine who's going to live and who's going to die. Who by thirst? Who by famine? You follow? And when there's limited supplies, that starts wars. And in many ways, the rain in the beginning of the winter is going to judge the outcome of the entire year if I follow nature. And who do people pray to? To the rain god. He has a name. It's called Baal. Isn't Baal the rain god? I think so, isn't he? Used to be? One of them. What? Storm god. Storm god, yeah. Storms bring rain. And he's got a consort, remember, the fertility god? Good old Asherah. Because it makes sense. What Idol worship makes a lot of sense. Chumash is saying no. Right? There's one god. And based on what we, not based on prayer, based on bowing, rather, based on your behavior. That's all the laws. If you keep the laws of Sefer Dvarim. Now, I come to the temple to remember that God judges me based on my behavior, not based on my prayer. I pray to remember that I'm being judged by my behavior. You follow? The two stages of prayer? That's, that's what Shlomo is saying, for sure. It's a, because Yirmiyot, when people come to the temple and pray for rain without improving their behavior, he says, you're worshiping Baal. Because <laughs> he's not, he's not, you're treating your God like a rain God. You misunderstood what God is. Now, so, so what I'm trying to explain is, that explains all the holidays, why they're agricultural, because we're being judged, we're recognizing that God is behind nature. Therefore, they're always something to do with seven, seven days, seven weeks, seventh month, got it? They're all in agricultural times of the year. And, and, therefore, and they all reflect the basic theology that God uses nature as a tool, either to reward or punish, as an indicator if we're doing a good job or a bad job. The goal is not the rain, the goal is being God's people. And, and, but the tool is used by God to keep us in shape, or keep us in check. And when we understand that, that explains what's behind the holidays, at least in ancient times. How to apply that to nowadays, that's a different lecture. You know, how to, God's still involved, but he has, needs new tools because we, solve, we sort of solve all these other problems. So that's what I want to share with you. And that explains now, for one last source, Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is really, there's nothing agricultural at all. But we understand Rosh Chodesh as a special gift from God. Instead of getting a yearly final on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, half of our grade is Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. The other half is a monthly quiz. Understand? Remember in school? And what God's giving us time is, instead of all that judgment happening once a year, once a month we get what's called a Yom Kippur Katan. I'm not making it up, am I? Right? We say that in davening, don't we? Roshay Chodeshimam Chanatata, Zman Kapara. How do we know Rosh Chodesh is Kapara? Because we bought a sirchatat, because one of the korbanot is a sirchatat. Sirchatat is a sin offering, which we bring on Yom Kippur. Got it? So because of the korbanot, we know that it's a time of repenting. Zikaron uchulamiu, it's a time of remembering. Not remembering to be a member of my God. Therefore, what's the proof we're being judged? We pray to God to give us a good judgment. Remember Yalav Now it makes sense. Yalav is based on Pasuk Yod, in case you didn't know. You didn't know that, did you? When did we say Yalav Yom Simcha Chem because it's the time of Zikaron. Therefore, Zachreinu Balatova. Now, what do we want God to consider? We know we're being judged by God on a routine on, every month, a monthly quiz. When God is about to judge us, what, what do we want God to take in consideration? Consider what we've done. Consider what our parents did, what our grandparents, our forefathers. We dedicated a city in your honor. Our whole nation is dedicated to you. Remember? Zikaron Amcha Beit Yisrael, Zikaron Yushamir Kachacha. Before you judge us, take into consideration the whole picture. And give us a good judgment, even though we don't deserve it. You follow? That's the I love you in a nutshell, isn't it? But it's all beginning with the assumption it's a time of judgment. So that's what I want to share with you. Um, and that's why Rosh Hashanah now makes a lot of sense. If, what's the definition of Rosh Hashanah? It's a zikron Torah. Now, does that mean remember to blow shofar or blow shofar to remember? Now, if we need to remember to blow shofar, and the main thing is blowing shofar, I would call the day Yom Torah in davening. If the main thing we do, we need to remember that God judges us, and I'm blowing shofar to remember that we're being judged by God, I would call it Yom Azikaron. Now, what do we call it in davening? The shtick is blowing shofar, but the goal is Azikaron. Got it? And therefore, in davening, they're right on the mark. It's Yom Azikaron, is that, not Yom Turah. It's, it's Yom Turah Yelachem, but that's what we do to remember. But the day, the definition of day is a day of 
we're, we're being judged by God. So that was, I try to share with you the Jewish calendar. I hope it makes sense now. And why the number seven? That was, we take advantage of, every ancient people had, had calendars. And usually, and the calendar has to do with the religion. But our religion is our connection to God, being a nation representing God. And we're going to use our calendar and our holidays to improve our behavior. Not to remember that we work for God instead of God working for us. And then when God gets involved in our history and gets involved in nature, and, and there's a good side about it, is that way we have, a, we have a connection to God. We have a relationship with God. And therefore, praying for rain in Matar is such a big theme since, since the first day of Gan Eden, right? Remember? There's no, remember the first, I was just end with the first Rashi in Gan Eden. There's two things missing for things to grow. Remember how Gan Eden story begins? Okay. Nothing's growing. Why? There's no rain yet and no man to work the land. So watch this. Things grow without man working the land. What's man need to do? To recognize the goodness of, of the rain, to pray for rain. God needs man to pray for rain so he can give rain. God needs someone to appreciate discretion. And therefore, he makes man to appreciate what God did. I think that relates to the same idea. It's a thing that slowly builds up from the beginning of Chumash. It goes through. Anyway, thank you very much. And uh, it's, it's not holiday season, but it's something you remember. But Rosh Chodesh is coming up, so at least we have that. Okay, thank you. One question? Yeah. Oh, answer a question, but it's late, so I can answer Yeah, so before, before uh, really take, I think is not running, so happy to answer okay, questions. Okay, but yeah. just some quick things. We have, of course, at Trisha, the ongoing classes that are, Rabbi Sober has been teaching every week and other classes that are going on. Two big events that are coming up on the Drisha calendar, which is far less theological apparently than the Jewish calendar. One is on November 29th. Drisha faculty member Dr. Malka Simkovich uh, just wrote a, a new book on the literature, Jewish literature of Bayit Sheni, which is this sort of forgotten period in terms of uh, what we study. We typically skip from Tanakh to Chazal. Showed a new book on Second Temple literature, and we have an event at the Sixth Street Synagogue where Dr. Simkovich will be speaking and Professor Larry Schiffman will be speaking on a Jewish appreciation of Bayacheni literature. And then on uh, just a couple of days later, that's a Thursday evening, on, on Sunday, Erev Hanukkah, December 2nd, we have an event that Teresha is co-sponsoring, co actually primarily organized, together with NYU and 929, and Safaria being, taking place at NYU, where uh, Rabbi Lord Sachs is giving the keynote sheer speech. And there are also classes by Drisha faculty members and also Safaria educators, 929 uh, educators as well. Information about those two and everything else that's going on is on the website drisha.org. And certainly we hope to see you there.